So, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but the ladies are on a retreat. <laughs> um, we just prayed. So, I decided that since the ladies, so many of our ladies, not all of them, um, were on a retreat, that today would be man day at our church. So, if you're, if you're a guy, there is, every guy gets a package of bacon, no, they don't. Isn't that just what everyone has to say and do? It's all about bacon for any men's event. It's like, come get the bacon. But, but I don't have any bacon for you. <laughs> but I do have a specific word from the scriptures that more than any other, I, I think of when I think of men. And um, it's been a word I've heard since my earliest days in ministry, and I've always been provoked by it. It's very short and it's very ubiquitous. If you're in men's ministry or you're in church life long enough, you've probably heard this verse. And if you go into the men's room at El Shaddai, <laughs> right 15 feet there, you're going to hear it as well. Um, and the passage comes from the end of 1 Corinthians. It's a sum-up command. And Paul is talking to a church with all kinds of issues that we can relate to. Issues of division, bitterness, Lawsuits, drunkenness, sexual immorality, pride, rich and poor, class warfare. And at the end of the letter, he's basically summing up his heart for them, his concern for them. And, and he, he puts a lifetime worth of thought in about 16 words. And he says this to them at the very end of the letter. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I think that is one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. And I love so much the symmetry. I love that as he calls the hearers to act like men, to be strong as if to make sure they understand what that really means and where the focus is. Without missing a beat, apologizing, or explaining, he says, let all that you do be done in love. And actually, this passage is, as they used to say about um, a certain deodorant that I have on occasion used in emergencies, strong enough for men, but also made for women. Remember Secret and the Secret commercials and the Secret motto? And... I'm a married man with a wife who uses secret, and every once in a while, so do I. Full disclosure. If you take nothing else out of today, take that with you home. It's great. But the truth is, everything I will say today, and by the way, I use it when I have to, okay? Let's get that out of the way. It's not, I just run out of something, and so I'm not. But everything I say is really going to be applicable to women as well. In fact, this verse, act like men, those, that phrase, <clears throat> isn't specifically to the men. Paul is writing to all of Corinth. And when we get to that part of the passage today, I'll explain why when he says act like men, he's talking to the women too. But the point is everything I say will apply not only to the men, but to our sisters and our wives and the Lord. But I do believe God has four things to say, especially to our men today. Just anecdotally this week, I was very excited to try to bring something very focused to men because our ladies were, so many of the ladies, not all the ladies, <laughs> so many of our ladies were gone um, on the retreat. And I thought, what a great opportunity to really try to talk more directly to the men. 
but I went through about three different sermon um, ramp-ups, intros, working through the message, and, and it just kept, I just felt like there was a, a roadblock at each turn. And um, I think it was, I, I went home on Thursday night con- concomitantly at the same time, very discouraged about the day, and at the same time very confident because of God's grace that he was going to meet me with food to hopefully give to you guys. And so I woke up the next morning and um, the Lord woke me up extra early and I had some time with him alone. And by the time I got in here, I felt like, wow, this is what I really have faith that God wants to speak to our men about. So I, I pray that that is in keeping with God's truth and whether that burden will bear out to have been a specific burden for my heart or not, the great news is it's not my word I'm preaching today. It's God's word. And therefore, it will, hopefully, it will do its work. It will not return void. So let's pray for that, that thing that God wants to do through his word, which is to make it transformative and to not let it return without doing the work he wants it to do in our hearts, whether we're men or women today. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchmen watch in vain. It is vanity. It is meaningless pride. To get up early and to go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. For the Lord gives to his beloved even as she sleeps. Therefore, Lord, I pray your forgiveness on my anxious toil, getting up late, rising up early, and I pray that you would, God, do what only you can do for your glory, for the good of your people. Make this word life. Make it what it is in our experience, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to discern joint and marrow, soul and spirit. I pray that your word today would be the surgeon who heals, even if he cuts, who sews back up, who anoints with oil, Lord, let these words today, by your grace, be not information alone, but transformation, encouragement, nourishment. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. We're we're through as we've heard and we've been thinking and talking and praying and singing about for weeks now. In whose name by which we are now not primarily in the church building in Frederick City, but in the most holy place where we've come for grace and mercy by the blood of the Lamb. We are truly in the most holy place in existence. The throne room of Almighty God. And here we come in Jesus' name to pray for you to meet us.
in a powerful way, in a life-giving way, in a hope-giving way. In Jesus' name, amen. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And in lieu of further pithy introduction, I'm just going to get right to it. Point one, be on the alert. Be on the alert. You might recall 1 Peter 5 and Peter's similar exhortation there. Be sober-minded. Be on the alert. Be on your guard is what he's saying. Be ready. And then Peter follows it with your enemy The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul doesn't elaborate to Peter's degree, but I know that he would agree with what Paul says, what Peter says. And in the context of 1 Corinthians and all that was happening there in Corinth, he would agree that the devil is at work prowling around, and that he works much oftener, especially in the West, in less scary ways like we see in the movies, but in the duller, more cunning ways, the more hidden ways of lying to us, tempting us, lulling us to sleep, lulling us to hopelessness, lulling us into pleasures that kill us spiritually. So Paul says, be on the alert. Be on the alert for attack. From the beginning of time, from the first narrative of creation on the the pages of Genesis 2 up until today, Satan and sin have been lying lying in wait to attack. And Paul says, be on the alert. Be on your guard. Just a brief survey of scriptures narratives of the need for being alert being aware being on our guard think about eve walking in the garden of god enjoying his presence what she was made for but the whole time satan slithering close by so she so he might lie to her about god so he might tell her that he was really not good and that he did not really love her even as god sought to protect moses humility and the Exodus wanderings. And as God commended Moses for his humility in the Exodus wanderings, the rebellion and the grumbling of Israel tempts Moses to pride, tempts him to hatred and anger, requiring the Lord's discipline. No sooner does David overcome Saul, no sooner does he become anointed king of Israel, no sooner does he secure peace in Israel, than he's on the roof. And Satan invites him to lust and to murder, and to self-sabotage all the work of God's hands through him. As soon as Jesus begins his ministry with John's proclamation, as soon as he comes out of the water, this is my son. What happens next? Jesus is led into the desert where the devil lies in wait trying to get Jesus to give up on his mission and take his glory at the expense of our salvation and take the easy way out. No sooner had Peter bravely committed to stand by the Lord even unto death than Satan was ready to literally sift him as wheat and destroy his soul. At perhaps the apex of Paul's 
spiritual experiences as a Christian when he was caught up into the third heaven, seeing things he couldn't even speak about. They were so wonderful beyond imagination. Paul tells us that at that point, he was so vulnerable to spiritual pride that God had to bring a tormenting spirit from Satan to, into his life to protect Paul from pride, to protect him from becoming conceited. But listen, in, in, think about this. In none of these situations did that mean God was not at work. In all of these situations, the presence of sin and Satan trying to master us meant that God had been powerfully at work and was passionately committed to the person in trouble. Each of those anecdotes happened to people that God passionately loved and was passionately concerned about and was powerfully at work in their lives. I'm not saying that any failure of, of our endeavors, any trouble we have in our lives, is only and always due to satanic or sinful opposition, <clears throat> car breakdowns, or, or the flu. Sometimes it is just living in a fallen world, but it's also true that opposition attacks us exactly where God is at work to use us. Opposition attacks us exactly where God is at work to use us. I have seen this especially in ministry. Men and women whom God wants to use strategically will, will find challenges of fellowship and friendship in those networks of ministry. Suddenly, especially hard. Things that weren't issues before or shouldn't really be issues become issues. I hear stories of the mission field. I've experienced it myself on pastoral teams. I've watched it happen in many churches now after 20-some years in pastoral ministry. I remember beginning my first stint as a like, paid worship leader on staff, dedicated to this profession of worship leading for a church in 19, no, 2001. And I remember that God had assigned me with this singles pastor, Paul Martins. And I just was aware as I began to work with Paul that there was a irritation and a frustration with him in my soul that seemed foreign to my experience of my relationships with people. I, I just had never experienced the level of low threshold to annoyances and irritations from a person. I remember sitting at my desk one day realizing, you know, I would have called myself a pretty chill and easygoing guy, but in the last few weeks of working with this guy, I have been tempted to be irritated, to be short-tempered, and then it occurred to me, this is strategic. <laughs> this is not an accident. This is Satan at work. God has something really important for me and Paul to do. And as it turned out, over the next eight years, he really did. We did a lot of amazing things by God's grace, or I, I should say God did a lot of amazing things despite us. But Satan was really at work. And I had to learn, you know, through discipline of sicknesses and um, working through scriptures and some painful assurance battles. God was saying, you can't be in ministry with your brother. Expect me to bless it while you hate him. I just, I just knew that from that day on, 
I needed to be alert, be on my guard in ways that needed more attention. I've seen it in marriages so often where God, by design, so often puts two people together who are so different. He does that because of the great work he wants to do in the, people's, in, in the couple's hearts for each other. He does it because he has a broad frequency of ministry he wants them to bring to each other and to others. And he wants things to happen in their lives and around their lives that could not happen if it was just one person. So he brings someone very different to another person very different. I don't think it's just a colloquialism that opposites attract. I think it's by God's design so often that opposites attract. But what happens so often? Those opposites that were meant to make something bigger and wholer and more beautiful than it could ever have been on its own become these areas where Satan and our sin works to create friction and division. And so Paul says, be on the alert. Those aren't accidents of life. Your enemy, the devil, he does prowl around seeking to devour be on your guard. But there's another way I, I think we can hear this warning, to be alert. It's, it's, it's also an admonition that we might hear this way. Stay awake. Stay awake. Not, not to let ourselves be lulled into complacency and drift. Have we ever lived in an age where it's been easier to drift? <clears throat> have, have we ever lived in an age where it's been so easy to fall asleep or in a country, in a time, I don't, I don't, I mean, as I look back at history, I just think I wouldn't be surprised if, if 2019 in America is uniquely in history the easiest place to just be lulled to, to spiritual sleep and just gorge yourself on entertainment and mind-numbing media. The world around you, especially in, in media, and I, I want to pick on media for a little bit, the world around you is not indifferent to your attention. The media world around you, it is not indifferent to your attention. It's not neutral about your heart. It wants your heart. It wants your attention. And we have to think about this more than just, oh, they're just companies, it's their job, it's just entertainment, they want to make things exciting and fun. We need to step back and think about the world what Jesus says about the world. In John 17, Jesus says, he's praying for the disciples and he says this, the world has hated them, the disciples, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. God is saying about his disciples, God, Jesus is praying, please keep them safe from this world. This is a world they need to be kept safe from. That's what Jesus says. In the New Testament, this world word, cosmos, is, is used often, not as the world as the planet Earth with oceans and continents. It's the world as the spiritual dominion of Satan, dominated by his values and his agenda. And this, this domination crosses all ethnic lines. It crosses all party lines. It crosses all socioeconomic lines. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. It doesn't matter if your bank account is heavy or light. Everyone that does not belong to Jesus is in the dominion of the world. 
And here's what 1 John 5, 19 says about the world, rather bluntly. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's God's word. What does that mean? So again, we can evaluate this in all kinds of spheres of life. <coughs> but, but just on my heart today is to pick on media, to pick on the internet for a moment. The people creating your phones, the people posting content online, be it on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, cable TV, they are rarely primarily interested in your well-being, if at all. There are exceptions, but they are almost always not interested in your well-being. At the end of the day, they are, like we can be, they are imprisoned to making money off of you as their primary desire and their primary need that drives them. And, and so the entertainment industry, the news industry, the sports industry, the gaming industry, etc., et and they're not just abstract industries, they're populated by people who are consumed with the world, and they, they are excellent and getting better and better every day at calling to your attention and keeping your attention. They have to do this. That's their goal. And they know better than ever what will stimulate you, what will make you laugh, what will make you be deeply troubled, what will make you be deeply moved, and what will sexually draw you. They, they trade on our fears, and they trade on our desires. And, and Trust me, I'm, I'm not going to go for some, no one can look at the internet or look at news anywhere. That's not where I'm going with this, but just try to follow me for a second. The people who in the main are in charge of media for you, whatever it is, they want your money. <laughs> they want the influence that your attention will bring them. They want the security that your attention will bring them. They want the fulfillment that your attention will bring them. And again, there's a lot of good that can be done on and through the internet. But in the main, when you turn on your phone and when you turn on the internet, you should say to yourself, I am going somewhere to a large degree where they don't care about me. And they're implicitly, implicitly without even trying to, against my spiritual well-being. Because to them, I am a thing to be used. This is a place I am about to go to that is full of powerful, magnetic, and bad reasons why I will want to be there and stay there and keep coming back there. Even at the point where my body will begin to crave it beyond my conscious choice. And I have found that. Even on innocuous, innocuous like, you know, quote, harmless, unquote, sites like Facebook, that if I go and I keep going without being on my guard, I will be used to my hurt, I will give over my will's strength. It's so easy to spiritually fall asleep today. And I suppose 200 years ago in some church in England, Charles Spurgeon would have said the same thing or 150 years ago. But I don't know if they could compete <laughs> with what you can binge on Netflix or just scrolling aimlessly through Facebook 
Even if you turn off the internet, your phone allows you to have all day running conversations with everyone and anyone in your social circle. How, how will you and I have any emotional or mental space in our hearts left for our jobs, for our families, for our church? And when you go home, the confluent, these, these intermingling lines become powerful. I, I go home and I, now I can take the church with me at home with email and texts and all the accessibility I have to you and you have to me. And that goes for all of you. <clears throat> to that, Paul says, be on your guard. Be careful. Solomon begs his son in Proverbs 4 this way. He says to his son, Watch over your heart with all diligence, all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Your heart is the most important piece of you. It's the most important part of you. From your heart springs your desires, your passions, your wants, your fears. Your heart directs the course of your life and leads you to your destiny. It is the most important thing about you, and it is tremendously vulnerable. We are not like God who never changes, whose heart is always steadfast. We are very malleable. Our hearts are very malleable. My heart can be for my marriage so powerfully, so strong, and in a few moments... My heart can be stolen away from my marriage so quickly. My heart is so fickle. My heart can be for God and relying on God and hoping in God in one moment and then the next moment or the next morning, he just feels so far away from me and I feel so far away from him and I'm tempted to just want to be content with that and get done what I need to get done for church. How horrible does that sound? <clears throat> The last few weeks, I've been in a war with the internet. I have found myself so even physically inclined when I'm sitting at my desk and working on a paper, working on notes to just physically just want to turn to my computer and punch up Facebook or sports or a Star Wars site or news or whatever. I, I could tell it was taking over my body. It was ruining my joy, stealing my time, making me ashamed, you know, by last Saturday, I just had to say to God, I'm committing to stay off the internet except for ministry or caring for my family for the next two weeks. I'm just done. For two weeks, no internet, unless it's for ministry. I, I will post verses on Facebook or God things on Facebook. I will look for a HVAC blower for my house on the internet or look for a movie with my kids to watch, but I'm not going to just sit here and be led by my body every 15 seconds to, to check the news and to get that zzz, 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 whatever that thing is creating of dopamine in my mind to grab at and get at. And the only way I could kind of get out of that was to kind of make a commitment to God. Because I don't like to make commitments very specifically to God. I don't like to put myself in that target area. <laughs> Apart from the basic general principle of his word. But when I do, I, I feel that sense of deeper accountability and so I felt like I was getting so attached to this thing that I had to do something a little more drastic and just say God I'm committing to you I'm fasting from this thing for two weeks and it's been so good it's been so just 
cleaning out my brain, so peace-giving to my soul, that once I made that commitment, so much more peace, so much more hope, so much more shalom moved in that I just made a commitment to the Lord for the rest of the year. I'm not, and it wasn't hard. I'm just like, this is so much better. Like, for me, I'm not saying for you, but watch it for you. Whoever you are for you and you know, take that to the Lord. Be on your guard. There are places in our lives where we just get lulled into a kind of sleep of death. So Paul says again, be on your alert. No one drifts towards holiness. No one drifts towards living a life of intentional love for others. It doesn't come easily and naturally. It comes from an alert heart that's on its guard. And it comes from a heart that knows where to turn when the ambush comes or when the drift comes. Which brings us to our next exhortation from Paul. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. This is not another command separate from be watchful. Be watchful over here. Then over here, stand firm in the faith, disconnected. No, he's saying be watchful, but in response to the attacks that you are watching and seeing coming at you, he says stand firm in the faith as they come. Peter makes this even clearer when he writes like Paul, same, same sentiment here. He says, be watchful. Remember we quoted earlier, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Next phrase, resist him firm in your faith. So Peter and Paul have been sending letters to each other about what to write the churches. And they both came upon this idea. Be watchful, stand firm. I like it, Peter. I like it, Paul. Let's go with it. But in other words, the way we prepare for and respond to the attacks that we're on guard about is to, in response, stand firm in our faith. When the temptation comes, and it will, stand firm in your faith. See, every temptation from the enemy, every temptation from the enemy, whether, whether you hear it this way or feel it this way or not, it's, it's implicitly a lie. It's a negation of some truth about Jesus. And it may not come that way, you know? Like, you're, you're just going to be tempted to believe this thing about Jesus. No, it's going to be you're tempted to believe this thing about women, which is going to deny some truth about Jesus and his world. You might feel the power of the lie of powerlessness to your sin and your trial and your struggle. And you'll be tempted to believe you're hopeless here. There's nothing you can do. You'll never be different. You'll never be able to walk in freedom, ever. That's denying the truth. That's denying the truth that the door between you and God doesn't exist anymore in Christ Jesus. That the wall between you and God's help is somehow actually there. (laughs) It's not there. It's been blown to bits by Jesus Christ, by the blood of the Lamb. And he waits at his throne for you to come because you need help, because you're beaten down by your sin again, because it's so hard to keep walking with him. Because of those things, he blew the door to his throne of grace and mercy to bits. And so the temptation to hopelessness, the temptation that I'll never be any better, that I can never walk any different, 
Well, you got to stand firm in your faith. You got to say no. Jesus Christ tore the veil between me and God. We talked about this last week. What an idiotic thing it would be to stand outside a hospital with gunshot wounds and you're bleeding from those wounds and to say, looking at the sign that says hospital emergency room, I'm not good enough for this place. <laughs> right? Or I'll come back to the hospital and I'm doing a little bit better. We feel the, the power of the lie that we're distant from God and alone. God's joy is impossible for us to get to ever again. Our, our faith tells us, however, no, you're seated in Christ. He's not left you as an orphan. His spirit dwells in you. Peter, or Paul saying, stand on, the, on that firm faith. We feel the power of the lie of shame for our sins, that we're worse than worthless to him. We're doomed by condemnation. That we're ugly to God. And Jesus says, no. The very blood of the infinitely precious Son of God has paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And you stand perfect as regards to your sin debt before God. It has been taken away. You are accounted righteous in Christ despite your poor performance today or yesterday or tomorrow. Paul is saying, stand firm in that truth. We feel overwhelmed with everything that is before us, bills and health issues and job issues and marriage issues. We just feel ambushed by the circumstances of our life, many of which we have no control over. We believe we will be crushed by all the responsibilities and problems we face or all the empty bank accounts in the future awaiting us. But God's word, our faith that we're to stand on tells us we only have one day to live today. We're only called and asked and commanded to be concerned about one day. It's today, not tomorrow. And he tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. That as we commit ourselves, even imperfectly, to seeking his ways, he will provide all we need. And he's calling us to walk by faith and not by sight. To stand firm in that faith. And he's telling us to just do that today. There's enough grace today. Stand firm in that faith. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Or today has enough trouble. We feel the lie of bitterness as we're, we're devastated by memories of the wrongs done to us and filled with crippling anger. That just ambushes me sometimes. And our faith calls out to us and says, every wrong done to you will be accounted for. God cares about what's done to you. God cares about how people have hurt you. And everything will be accounted for, either in the fires of hell or on the cross where Jesus was killed and crushed for every sin committed against you and I. And because of this, we're called to stand on that truth and, and wait for God's justice, pray for God's forgiveness over those people, pray for our enemies, hope for their restoration. But listen, every one of those lies that I mentioned, every one of those temptations, when it's left untreated long enough, when allowed to grow in our hearts, it ends up becoming a powerful fuel 
to propel us to escape. When we let lies like our shame, our condemnation, our hopelessness, our, our bitterness, when we allow those lies to grow in our hearts, to, to live there, unmet, unstood against, they become powerful fuel to, to draw us, to, to, to push us to escape into some destructive escape, into some destructive sin that leads us further and further away from joy and away from God's heart for us, his will for us to have the joy of him be our strength. It, it can be an escape into the abuse of entertainment that looks very innocent. It can be an escape into the abuse of sexuality that looks very harmful. It can, it can be an escape into the idols of work or stress that can look really commendable. It can look more harmful like an escape into greed for money or rage or self-hate. But it's always an escape away from God. Paul says, no, don't run away into those escapes. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the truth about God. All that's true about Jesus, all that's true about you now because of Jesus. But this begs the question, doesn't it? Like, are we hearing Jesus? Are we aware of his word? Are we aware of his truth? Are we seeing it in his word enough? Are we praying to him about it enough to have it become part of our hearts? Are we asking him to help us long and hunger for the word that we don't always naturally hunger and long for? Are we close enough to his truth, often enough to stand firm in it? Are we around his people who love us and who will love us with the truth? Enough, frequent enough. Can, can you and I stand firm in the faith when ambushed, when we need to in battle? Can we do that if we're not seeking God and his truth when we're not in the battle? Like when we're, can we stand up in the crushing circumstances when we're not feasting on him when the circumstances aren't crushing us? It's very hard. See, the, the battle will often drive us to truth. But if we only go there in the battle, we will spend our Christian lives treading water instead of taking ground. We'll spend our Christian lives in perpetual embryonic states of immaturity instead of growing in the grace and knowledge of God to become strong in Him, not in ourselves. And so I think such a crucial application for being able to stand firm in the battle when your guard is up and you see the ambush coming is when the ambush isn't there, what are you doing to be close to him, to enjoy him, to know him in his word? I never saw ever, as far as I can understand, I, I've never had a greater change in my life as a believer as I did in 1996. When, when I began after being a Christian for four years like this, like this, like this, like this, all the time, up and down, up and down, up and down, God met me through various people to, to tell my soul very loudly, you can't seek God only in crisis. You, you need a regular, habitual discipline of devotion to him in his word and in prayer. I, I heard that many years ago, and it's been so true. And I haven't always been as honest, so to speak, as I, as I was in 1996. 
but there's been nothing that's made a greater change in my life and given me more stability and relative to me <laughs> than trying to get to him early and often every day. Trying to get to him in prayer and in his word early and often every day. And Satan hates it. I mean, he'll put anything in my way. I do not want to spend time with God when I wake up hardly ever. And I don't think that's an accident. I think I'm being ambushed. <laughs> but I know better at this point than to listen to that too long. But the discipline, that habit of devotional life outside battles has helped me stand in the battle, in tougher battles, in ways that I never had before. But listen, listen as we move through this passage, that kind of discipline, which I struggle to maintain, I'm not perfect in that at all, but that kind of discipline, that kind of resoluteness of a commitment, it, it, it was different than the kind of aimlessness and wishy-washiness that I was very comfortable in for the first four years of my Christianity, or I was comfortable wallowing in. I was comfortable not being comfortable in. That discipline, it took a resoluteness and a commitment that wasn't there for the first four years. And I think that brings us to Paul's next word. And can I just say again, because I feel like I might be boasting, I struggle with that discipline. But relative to who I am, God built something in 1996 after four years of being a believer that wasn't there before, relative to me. And, and, and I, I think something of Paul's next word was in what he was doing to build that. Point three, act like men, be strong. Act like men, be strong. Again, Paul's not writing just to men. He's telling women, act like men, be strong. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with transgender issues. <laughs> Don't mean to be jokey, but it's not a sexual issue. It, it's not a gender issue. He's appealing to the character trait of courage that is typical of the best of masculinity. Think of warriors in dangerous battles. If you, someone says to you, I have a picture of a great soldier in a battle or a great knight in battle or a great warrior in battle, let me show you this picture. You're not going to expect a woman, right? You're going ex to expect a man to be there. Well, that's what Paul is saying. It's, it's a colloquial for a, a manly quality of courage that women are also called to have. And I hear Paul whispering that to all of us. Act like men. Be strong. And if it helps you, take out the men word because in Greek it can, it can be synonymous with have courage, be courageous, be strong. Think of Joshua leading the Israelites into many battles in the promised land. But think about before that when he was getting the baton from Moses, when he was about to succeed the great Moses, with so many battles that were going to come ahead, so much strife and warfare, and, and he's just like, what am I about, what's about, where am I, what am I getting myself into? And then think of God, spiritually, grabbing both his shoulders, looking him in the eyes, and saying, Joshua, have I not commanded you, be strong, and courageous. Don't be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you 
wherever you go. Your enemy wants to bully you into a life of sin, of failure, of weak faith in God, but God has so much good for you to do. In the faith of of so much against any committed disciple of Jesus, there is reason, yes, to be sober. There is reason, yes, to be alert. There is reason, yes, to have to stand firm in the faith, but there is no reason for, for me or you to be a coward. So Paul is saying, don't be a coward. Be courageous. There's too much at stake. There's too much for you to do. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are God's masterpiece. You are a new creation. that God created for good works, that he planned in advance for you to walk in. And the targets of those good works, the objects of those good works, it's not rocket science to figure it out. It's right in front of you. It's your close friends. It's your wife or your children, or your husband. It's your siblings, it's your parents, it's your church family, it's your neighbors, it's your coworkers, it's your parents, it's your brothers and sisters in Christ. It, you didn't walk in here this morning and find out that tomorrow God wants to be sovereign in your life about where he's placed you. He planned every day for you in advance for you to walk in. Psalm 139, 16 says, All my days were written in your book before one of them came to be. And all the people around you right now, they're the works that God created in advance for you to walk in, loving them, caring for them, strengthening them. Your marriages. I've watched people struggle with, with, should I have married this person? And, and for some of you who've been divorced, I'm sorry. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. But your life is not an accident. It's not just you. And if you're in a marriage today, it's not an accident. It's a work that God had planned in advance for you to walk in. And Paul says, listen, in light of the amazing work that God has for you to do, the eternal important work that God has for you to do with those people right in front of you, You don't have to be on a stage with spotlights or in a church with 3,000 people or in a boardroom controlling trade across the borders. You have eternal work to do for eternal souls that you're sitting right next to in this room. It's the most important work in the universe, the work of eternal souls. And Paul says there's no excuse for drifting off to complacency or self-indulgent or cowardice with so much at stake. But that's not his main point here. His main point is there's so much at stake to be cowardly in the face of a God who is so powerfully for you and with you. The fuel for our courage is not our performance. The fuel for our courage is not our perfections. It's not our personality. The fuel for our courage is God's presence. We have a God with us, so full of mercy for our daily sins. 
so full of love for us that he gave his own son for us, which was a painful thing for him to do, but he did it because he is for you and he loves you. He's so committed to our growth and victory that he placed his very spirit in us. And I don't mean victory as some platitudinal easy thing. I mean over the course of our life, him taking more and more territory over in our hearts and using us more and more to build others. So Paul says, in light of that kind of God, not you, in light of him, there's no reason not to call you to be strong and courageous and not give in to fear. Paul might elaborate here. I'm using my imagination, but I hope it's biblically based because I think you'll see. He might say to you, what temptation is so great that that your God would go back on his promise to provide a way out of it? He might say, what financial trial is so great that your God would go back against his promise to feed you and clothe you? What confusion in your life right now is so great that your God would go back on his promise to give you the wisdom you need at the right time? What weakness of yours is so great that he would go back on his promise to have sufficient grace in you such that he's magnified in your weaknesses? In in Romans 8, Paul puts on his accountant hat. You ever seen those accountant hats? They've got like visors for looking under bright hot lights. And he does this sort of ledger seat of spiritual assets and liabilities for you. Like, here's your spiritual assets, here's your spiritual liabilities. But it doesn't take a CPA degree for Paul to conclude that you've got a pretty positive bottom line. He says, if God is for us, who is against us? Who, who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so he says, he's going to give you all things that you need today to walk with him. Be courageous. As I was preparing this message, I, I wondered if God was calling some of us, some of us out of a, a half-hearted following of him that's, that's marked us in this season marked by fear and failure and marked by fear of failure. A following him that's marked by fear and failure and marked by a fear of failure. I I feel like maybe God is calling some of us out of a a self-indulgent lukewarmness and he's grabbing you by the shoulders and saying, play the man. Take my hand and be the man I called you to be. I sense God may be calling some of us to renew our commitments to him, to to put him first in our day of daily time in his word and prayer, meaningfully and early. To re-up that we're going to give ourselves more deeply to our wives, to our kids, to our families, to our church. That we're going to put the phone and the internet and the TV on the altar. Hold up the knife. I'm not sure if God's going to stay our hand if we do that. I have a feeling there'll be some cutting. There has been for me. It's, it's had to have been there for me. So if it's in your heart right now, decide today that you're going to give yourself to the Lord afresh. But that if you do, decide right now that he's going to have to sustain you. Decide right now that you, have, you, you can't do it on your own. 
You're going to have to be dependent on him every step of the way because that's the truth. But that's the truth he invites you to stand on. See, this is, this is not an invitation to perfect victory now. You're not going to struggle. He's, he's not signing you up for sinless perfection today. He, listen again, the foundation of courage is not your performance, but his presence. Consider these passages. Isaiah 41.10, listen. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We read Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. John 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What do all these passages have in common? In each case, courage has nothing to do with the performance of the person called to have it. It has everything to do with the God who promises his presence to the person called to have it. Do you see that? In every case, courage has nothing to do. The entreatment, the entreaty to have courage, to not be afraid, has nothing to do with the performance or the power of the person who is called to that posture. It has everything to do with the promise of God's presence to that person, to that weak, struggling person. And so it's with us. God knows our sins may be very bad. He knows our circumstances may be very hard, but he doesn't flinch at that stuff. He looks at it all in light of his son's righteousness over you, his mercy committed to you every day for all your failures, all of his power for you, and he says, have you considered me, though? Like, I know your sins are bad, very bad. I know your circumstances are very hard, but have you ever considered me? Do you, have you heard about me? <laughs> that I'm the I am who will never give up on you, who is with you right now, be courageous. Be strong. Act like a man. And finally, one last word. Let all that you be done, let all that you do be done in love. I love this. I love that he comes in here. You know, just in case we're getting our Rambo makeup on and putting the scarf and the AK-47 around our shoulders. He's like, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Tough guy. I mean, what a, what a, God, it's all your glory. But what a brain Paul has. <laughs> like, he just goes a few feet ahead of every mistake we're about to make when he writes. He's like, oh, but this, be strong, act like a man. Let everything you do be done in love. What? thought I was going to be a tough guy. I thought this was about Chuck Norrising it. Do everything in love. The point of all that I've been saying, Paul says, the point of being on your guard, the whole point of being strong to stand in the faith, the whole point of acting like men with courage, it's not machismo. It's not self-improvement for self-improvement's sake. It's not the best you you've always wanted for you. It's not coming into your destiny for you. It's love for others and for him. It's love. 
Love is the only cause. Love is the only cause worthy of our great faith. God doesn't want our faith and our Savior dressed with self-absorption. No, he wants it paraded around and adorned with love for other people and love for him. Love is the only cause worthy for our great Savior being alert and standing firm and, and being full of courage through all that he went through. So that what? So that he could find joy in your joy. That's what was on his heart. Finding his joy in your joy. Hebrew says that his love for others inflamed Jesus' heart and fueled all his courage and suffering. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Love is the only thing really worthy of this battle. And don't we, don't we all just know that? Don't we know that what Paul is calling us today, it's, it's, it's too glorious for ego. It's too beautiful for the buzz of self-exaltation, right? It, look, there is a kind of self-interest that God wants you and I to have, but it's, it's an otherworldly self-interest. It's the self-interest that says, there's nothing greater that I could spend my life on than the good of my wife, the good of my husband, or my brothers or my sisters that Jesus poured out his blood for. I want that kind of heart. You know, I, I struggle to have that kind of heart. I know you struggle to have that kind of heart, but that is a glorious, glorious call. That's a call worthy of the, of the beauty of our Savior, that call. To have the kind of heart that finds its joy in the joy of others. Could there be anything better said about a heart than that heart? Don't you know that intuitively that that's what you, you were made for, that that's what you long for, that kind of glory, that selfless glory? That glory that's not really interested in glory, <laughs> the way we think of it. There was something, go back to that verse in Hebrews. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was something so alluring to Jesus' heart, so arousing to his desire that he endured the worst pain imaginable, refused to buy into the lie of what this world says about the cross he was to carry all the mocking, all the spitting. He, he said, you go ahead, mock and spit. This is a glorious thing I'm doing. It's for love's sake. And it made him able to endure all those taunts and all those persecutions and all those temptations to bitterness and escape because his joy was seeing your eternal soul saved from the trash heap. His joy was seeing you restored to God's glorious image. His, his joy was seeing you healed and whole again. So he went through all that because his joy was your joy. That's what, he, that's what his joy is. That's the apex of his joy is the joy of your heart and his father's heart. And I know deep down that that's the life you want. That's the heart you want too. And that's the heart I want too, to have that heart that finds its joy in the good of others prosperity. I mean, spiritual prosperity. I struggled for a long time with, with Jen while we were courting about whether to marry her. This is my last little story, and I'll end here. 
I spent years trying to figure out if she was the right one for me. Did she have all the qualities I wanted in a wife? I mean, good qualities, right? Important qualities, devotion to God and sanity. (laughs) Attractive enough for me. I I wondered about those things. Marriage is a big deal. It's a big risk. It's lifelong. I wanted to take it seriously. But I spent so much time wondering. And and there are important things, like don't run off and marry anybody. That's not what I'm saying. But, But I spent so much time wondering. Is she right for me? And also wondering, was I up to it? Am I up to this? Was this really God's will? I was so consumed with getting God's will perfectly right, hearing him, I, God want me to go left, go right. Got to make sure I'm in God's special will of what shirt I'm going to wear, what job I'm going to take, which car I'm going to buy. But what really brought things together for me, what was so incredibly freeing, was God's greatest goal for me was not to find the perfect wife but to have me become a husband who would find joy in her good. God's greatest goal for me was not to find the perfect wife, but for me to be the kind of husband who would, with compassion, find joy in her growth, in her good, in her safety, in her healing. And once I saw that call, like, it made so much, so many doubts, so many fears about being, was she the right one? It made it all just irrelevant. I'm being called to this glorious task of loving someone. And that's its own reward. It's hard. She's a much, I feel like she's a much easier woman to live with than I am a man, that's for sure. But only that commandment do everything in love could be glorious enough for the enormous risk I saw in marriage. And I think it's the same whether you're a man or a woman for for all of us that only giving our life away to others for God's sake and their sake is going to satisfy what our souls were made for.